Uh, right, we go to a record shop in uh, East London now, where um, they still sell still sell records by the looks of the uh, display behind. But um, I'm not sure that those many of those records are for sale. We welcome to 98 Not Out, Mr. John Altman. John, how are you, sir? Hi there. Yeah, all good. Thanks. <laughs> I'm being a bit cheeky. It's not a record shop at all. It's a fantastic display of uh, achievements from your career in the music industry that's adorning your wall behind. Yes. Yes. Um, it's very nice, actually. I mean, it's, you know, a few of them took quite a while to come, like 30-odd years, but uh, I got them in the end. Could you, just for the listeners who don't know, just give us a few examples of uh, some of the records that uh, you've, uh, you've won accolades for? Well, um, Alison Moyes at Old Devil Called Love, um, Alan Jones Walking in the Air, Simple Minds Street Fighting Years album, uh, Prefab Sprout, Langley Park to Memphis, uh, Diana Ross Christmas album, Tina Turner and Barry White, Wild Dreams, George Michael Faith, um, Monty Python's Life of Brian, The Ruttles, uh, York, it's so so quiet. Titanic, the movie, and um, a diamond disc for George Michael is on its way. Ten million sales in America. Wow, a diamond! I've never heard of a diamond disc before. Well, I hadn't before I found I could have one. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they're, they're those. You know, they have like ten albums in a display, and I said I haven't got any room for that. So. <laughs> They're going to just put one, you know, with a little flag. So that's good. I suppose while we're talking about uh, George Michael, we should just note uh, the sad news this week of the passing of Dionestus, the bass player for Wham and yeah. for George Michael, a friend of yours as well, I gather. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I last saw him at the Spandau Ballet reunion concert in Los Angeles, which would be about uh, five, six years ago now. But... Um, very tragic lot, and also a great arranger, John Ashton Thomas, who was Diana Ross's musical director and worked a lot for Hans Zimmer. And they both went this week, sadly. So uh, they're dropping quite quickly uh, at the moment. Very unfortunate. Very, very sad. Now, you mentioned Hans Zimmer there, very famous for um, scoring movie soundtracks. And you yourself are no stranger to, uh, to to movies, and uh, I gather that uh, you are or have some involvement in the new James Bond film, No Time to Die. Um, do you want to tell us about that? Yes, I, I actually got a call from Hans um, saying, uh, this is way beneath your capabilities or, or standard or whatever you want to call it, but... Um, we we want to do some James Bond. We're, we're doing No Time to Die, which I knew. And we want to put some of the brass that's associated with the Bond films into the film. There isn't, you know, the cues we've written don't really have that. So I arranged like the gun barrel at the beginning, uh, the Cuba chase that goes on the fight there and the big motorcycle chase at the beginning of the film. And then when I was in the studio recording, Hans popped in, he was in the big studio next door and said, um, would you mind conducting all the brass for the whole movie? 
uh, because we want the separation from the room so we can mess about with it in the mix. So I wound up taking charge of all the brass for the, for the film. And of course, being the last thing before lockdown, promptly forgot all about it for a year and a half. And suddenly the film's out and everyone wants to talk about it. So I'm sort of digging into my memory bank. But um, I was delighted to have been asked because I, I did the tank chase in Goldeneye 20 something years earlier. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in fact, Norm Bell. With, with, with about a week's notice, wasn't it? If, if that. Yeah, a day's notice, yeah. <laughs> was it over a weekend you did the whole thing? Is that the story? I did the whole thing over the weekend. It's absolutely true. That, that, was, that was Pierce Brosnan's first Bond film, and they were kind of reinventing things. And I gather from, uh, from what I've just sort of dug around with this that. Um, they weren't over-enthused with um, Eric Serra's synth-heavy soundtrack at the time. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's true. Um, <clears throat> I, I worked a lot with Eric as his arranger and conductor. And we did a film, very good film, called Leon with Gary Oldman and Jean Renault. And they loved it. The Bond producers loved it. And they said, we want that for Bond. We want to reinvent him and that's the sound we want. Um, when we got going on the film, it became very apparent that that really wasn't the sound they wanted. And they, they sort of panicked and thought, well, we've got a new James Bond. Will the public accept him? And will they accept a new angle for the music? So they, they wanted to veer back more towards the traditional James Bond soundtracks which is why they asked me to take over at that point. But um, obviously, because Eric had been hired as a composer, I was a bit, well, you know, you've got to phone him and okay with, it with him, otherwise I won't do it, you know, because my loyalty is to him, really. <clears throat> and um, Martin Campbell, the director, rang him and uh, he said, yeah, tell John to go ahead. So that was it. I, I went ahead. Oh, fantastic. Um, it does seem a long time ago now. I remember going to see that. And yeah, now you mentioned it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's uh... 27 years. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. And do you get do you get sight of the um, of the scenes that you're. Yeah, you're working to. You do. Yeah, okay. we, we had the film running so I could snatch a look. But obviously. I'm more concerned that, you know, one of the French horns doesn't split a note or you know the entry is right so my real focus is on how the music sounds now at the corner of my eye I can see the picture and I can go oh that looks good oh that's clever you know but you're not really taking in the whole thing until you see the film in the cinema I guess no it's not it's not like reverse choreography where you're putting the music to the movement it's just get yeah. the, get the notes right get the pauses right well, it, it is because it's written to, I mean, when I was writing it, I had all the visuals at my disposal. But again, you're matching, you know, you haven't got sound effects, you haven't got all the final dub. So you're looking at a bunch of, well, you know, really, really good stunt pictures. But again, your main concern is putting the, the brass stab in and, you know, doing the the little tough flourishes that everyone goes, oh, that's James Bond. So 
you're you're half focused on it. I, I wouldn't say you're totally ignoring it, but you're not hundred percent looking and going, oh, I, that looks really good. Oh, I forgot to write anything. I was so taken <laughs> up with the scene. From 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 what you're saying, I mean, are there certain um, structures you've got to stick to when you're scoring a Bond film that it, you need to keep referencing the Bond theme or little um, references yeah. that people are going to pick up on? Yeah, it's a mixture of of referencing the Bond theme where, where Monty Norman, who wrote the Bond theme, who actually used to sing in my jazz quartet, you know, <laughs> was my vocalist. Um, there is a contractual obligation to use a certain amount of the James Bond theme in the film. So we're all mindful of that. And we're also mindful of the flourishes that John Barry put in, you know, slightly jazzy brass, that um, in a lot of cases, it's very difficult to fit into what Hans does because Hans does his own thing. But I think we managed it. I think the soundtrack sounds great. It was a good album. Um in the mid nineties, uh, David, I can't remember the name escapes me, but they reimagined- David Arnold. That's it. Where they reimagined a lot of the themes with uh, contemporary musicians and bands. I think that seemed to work quite well, but clearly you had to stick to the, stick to the, um, stick to the rules. Yeah, well, there's, there's a, a distinction, of course, between the title songs that like, for example, this one, Billie Eilish did, you know, um, and the title songs are always totally separate from the score. You may reference them in the score. I think Hans did in a couple of cases, but they are separate entities. You know, you have a song and then you have whatever happens in the film. Sometimes they mix like Goldfinger, you know, you, the, the brass flourish from that. You, you try and use it somewhere, you know, along the, along the way. Not necessarily that flourish, but that idea of how the brass is treated. Well, even the final note of the Billie Eilish song, I think, is is probably a reference back. I can't I can't really place it, but it seems very Bond. Yeah, that guitar chord. Yeah, that 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 goes with Bond. There are certain things that immediately tell you it's James Bond. You know, it's yeah. like pretty pretty easy to throw them in. You know. <laughs> well, congratulations on your involvement with that again. Um, but. Uh, Regular listeners to this show and people that have come come across your path down the years will know that you are an avid, avid cricket enthusiast and um, um, probably as knee deep in cricket as you are in music. Um, And um, with the ashes galloping towards us on a three legged donkey, um, (laughs) (laughs) it just made me think of John Altman and Australia and the ashes. And uh, one of the stories that keeps coming up is. the time that you were appointed the Australian Social Secretary. Uh, so what was that all about? Well, it, it was it was interesting. I mean, I, I through Essex, obviously, originally, I, I got to know Mark Moore and Alan Border when they played at Essex. And I never took a holiday in the 80s. I was just working, 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 which, you know, there is a point to telling this <laughs> that um, in 1990, I suddenly decided, you know, the family were getting bigger. And I thought, you know, I've got a good idea. Let's go to the Caribbean and watch cricket. And they can sit on the beach, which I don't exactly enjoy. <laughs> and 
I'll go to cricket with my cricket mad son, you know, one of my sons loved going and we'll hang out. And I messaged um, one of the Australian team. I can't, can't re actually remember who, might've been Mark Waugh. And just said, do, do you have any idea where you're staying while you're there? And they came back with an itinerary. So I booked into the same hotels. <laughs> um, and in Barbados, we were all at the, what was then the Rockley Resort, which was cabins around swimming pool. And our cabin was next to all the Australian players. So if you wanted to use the pool or the, the you know, the lounge area or the, the breakfast area, you would be with the team. So the ones I knew introduced me to the ones I didn't know. And pretty soon um, I was gigging because um, Billy Ocean was in Barbados, Eddie Grant was there. Um, Vic Linton, who used to play guitar with Billy Ocean, lives there. So I hooked up with all those people and I would go and, you know, sit in with them. And I, I took Craig McDermott to Eddie Grant's studio, you know, it, it was fun. <laughs> we all hung out. So each night after the game, sorry, I am getting ahead of myself because no, the, first no. time I, the first time I went was England and I... I really was, well, I wasn't uncomfortable, but I mean, there were too many English people that's my liking. It was, it was, you know, you couldn't go anywhere without, without the, the it wasn't the Barmy Army then, but it was, it was the British holiday makers, you know, so the following year I went to Australia, West Indies, and the Australian public hadn't discovered the Caribbean as a place to go. So I was literally the only inverted commas fan of the Australian team. So they they would give it, you know, they'd each give me three complimentary tickets. So I had this wodge, you know, <laughs> Antigua, you know, so 60 tickets were where I could go. And they came to my gigs. So um, we became friendly. And when they came over in 93, um, they, uh, I went down to Arundel where they started the tour and Ian Healy spotted me through the window and said, oh, come in the dressing room, come in the dressing room. <laughs> and I have a apartment in Brighton. So they said, oh, we're in Brighton tonight. Is there anything going on? And I said, well, I've, I've got a place down there. That's where I'm staying. They said, right, you're taking us out. You're going to tell us what, what to do. And from then on, I, I sort of organized them, you know, and I, traveled on the bus and uh, took them to parties and took them to gigs. And, and that really continued till about 2013 because as new players came in, the older ones would introduce me and say, oh, he's got to, you know, he's gonna take us out. So really, I think Shane Watson and Brett Lee being musicians were the last two actual members of the team that I knew, but then all the people I knew from my days following the game were in the backroom staff, like Justin Langer and Darren Lehman and uh, Divinuto and all those people were, were, were sort of auxiliary staff. So it sort of shifted. And I mean, my cricket sort of friendships, you know, which when I was a younger guy would be with the players 
I mean, 20 year old players aren't really going to be interested in this old geezer. So, <laughs> so that, that part of my life has gone really, but um, we did have some funny moments. You know, we were the, the day Australia won the ashes in 93 uh, we all went down to Stringfellows and uh, they'd already thrown a couple of the players out. <laughs> uh, obvious um, alcoholic reasons. And I got there with, I think, Alan Border and uh, Mark War and a couple of others and they wouldn't let us in. <laughs> if you can imagine being banned from Stringfellows, you've got to be pretty sort of... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I guess COVID notwithstanding, that kind of um, any team that would come over and tour in London or wherever, or even in the West Indies, you, you don't have those freedoms anymore, do you? No, it's completely changed. It's completely changed. And in fact, the last time I went to see the Australian tourists play at Sussex, uh, they came back to the hotel, which is basically next door where I live. And they got off the coach and they literally all had their heads looking at the floor and sort of scurried into the hotel. And that was the last you saw of them. Yeah. But I, I was able to go back later in the evening and sort of you know, have a drink with Darren Lehman, who at the time was the coach, you know, because we'd been pals. So that, that was easy, but it changed completely. And then of course, they arranged a tour of um, Los Angeles, a tour. It was five games, Australia A v India A. And I thought they'd put it on for me because I was the only spectator. <laughs> Literally, the only spectator. But it was a TV thing, so all the commentators were there. So I actually, um, I, I hired at the time a convertible, whatever it was, BMW or something. And I took Barry Richards and Adam Gilchrist round Hollywood, you know, round... Beverly Hills and Bel Air and the canyons. And they've never forgotten that. You know, they always bring that up when they see me. You know, oh, you drove us through through Laurel Canyon. <laughs> Are there any of your um, Hollywood contacts, cricket fans out there? Any, um, any yeah, uh, any... I mean, apart, apart from the obvious sort of Brits and Australians who are in LA, the very surprising one. Um, I did a gig for about 10 years with a guy called Conrad Janis. And Conrad was Mindy's dad in Mork and Mindy, if you remember that TV series. Yeah. <laughs> and he's been in loads of Hollywood films. And I had a visitor at the gig from London, and they'd been watching the World Cup or, you know, something crickety. And he said to me, oh, you know, the, the result of the cricket yesterday was blah, 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 blah. And Conrad Janis walking by said, are you talking about Don Bradman? I, I sort of jumped back and said, um, no, we're talking about modern cricket. He's an you know, American New Yorker. And he said, that Michael Bevan is a hell of a one day player, isn't he? <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I thought, how do you know about cricket? He said, I'm a baseball fan. I have cricket on satellite, I love it. And he said, when, when I was doing a play in London in 1958, I got taken to England, New Zealand at Lords. And I said, well, that's amazing because that's the first test match I ever went to. He then proceeded to recite both teams in their entirety. 
including the New Zealand team, which nobody, <laughs> you know, John Reed and Alabaster and names that nobody would know ever again. I think, you know, New Zealand then would be all out for 40 because they, they could barely play. You know, it's changed completely now. Yeah. But he, he rattled off the names of both teams from 1958. Extraordinary. Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Um, and what are you up to? I mean, I know you're very involved with the Lord's Tavern. I see you quite a lot um, when we go to the various functions. Obviously, that's yeah. taking a bit of a downturn, whatever else. But um, what, what, what are you up to at the moment with things unwinding? Well, um, I used lockdown to write my memoirs, which was great fun. And they come out in February. Um, there's not much about cricket in them because they, they said save it for another book because um, I think they're thinking of selling it you know, in the States and places like that where cricket doesn't mean much to anyone. So I've only really got one cricket story in the book, which was um, a Bunbury game we played against John Norma Major's team with John Major umpiring. <laughs> um, Brian Close was captaining Norma Major's team, bless him. And the opening bowler was Richard Snell, uh, the South African test player. And our opening batsman, were Chris Broad and Bill Wyman. <laughs> and Brian Close said to Richard Snell, right, one of these guys is an ex-England test cricketer and the other one's a member of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so Richard, being South African, had no idea who the Rolling Stones were. Saw Chris Broad with his sort of long hair. <laughs> and thought, he's a Rolling Stone and he bowled him gentle logs. <laughs> When Bill got up the other end, it was bouncers and no <laughs> Bill was standing there, going, oi, oi, what are you doing? <laughs> Somebody had to run over and tell him, you know, you got them the wrong way round. <laughs> all the Rolling Stones are cricket fans, aren't they? Well, they are. Well, funnily enough, that that the only place I ever really saw Mick Jagger or Charlie Watts was at the cricket. I sat with Charlie at Lords again, you know, very sad loss. Yeah. The memorabilia he had on display in his house was Don Bradman's tour jacket. No wow. rolling stones things at all. <laughs> he paid like, I don't know, 30 grand or something for to have the tour jacket. You know, he was really proud of it. Oh, amazing. They, they, were, they were cricket fanatics, you know. They, Bill was the only one who really played. And Bill actually took a hat trick at, at the Oval, which oh, was televised. So <laughs> until, until someone did it recently, was it Mo and Ali? I can't remember. Um, yeah, yeah, against South Africa. Yeah. Bill, Bill was the, only, the game. Bill was the only televised hat trick from the Oval. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't. Well, it's 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 tricky this Ashes talk coming up because obviously it's not going to be the same without the Barmy Army and, uh, you know, I hope it goes ahead. It's, it's looking, it seems to be looking more and more likely, but it won't be the same, will it? Even it if it does go ahead. No, it won't be the same. I'm, I'm not sure about, well, some, I hope I'm proved wrong, but some of the selections, you know, I think Sakib should be there. We haven't got any really quick bowlers. Um, I can't understand why they didn't put Livingston in. Hmm. Um, We'll see. We'll see. I mean, it, it's 
there, there's no one who can really take the game to the Aussies, as far as I can see, apart from Root, you know, and for 11 people to rely on, you know, maybe Butler coming good or maybe Bairstow coming good. I don't know. I mean, I think their bowling attack is too strong for, for you know, to let us give us leeway to crack on. But I may be wrong. You, the great thing about cricket is you're quite often you're very wrong. It feels like a very safe selection, doesn't it? Just it does. It does. It's it's sort of um, okay. Well, he did well in the summer, so we'll give mm. him a go. He was almost okay, so we'll give him a try. It, it it just doesn't seem adventurous in any way, and especially without Archer and without Ben Stokes. Yeah, I but always it, there's there's a fine tradition of uh, um, down under ashes being good platforms for English sort of debutants, if you like. You know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of, of, of uh, Alex Tudor and um, yeah. you know people like that that have gone down there and performed uh, yeah. and have kind of wrong footed the Aussies a bit. Yeah, you hope that somebody will will sort of seize the gauntlet and actually, oh, you know, I can play like like Michael Vaughan did that time, you know, where where or Alistair, you know, sort of oh, Chris Broad even going back, you know, yeah, suddenly yeah. looked invincible, you know. It, it, <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. It 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 should bring out the best in people. And you hope it will, you know, but equally you you dread a sort of five nil. <laughs> <laughs> there have been quite a few of those in recent years as well. <laughs> well yeah, yeah. I, I, I had the great joy of traveling with what they used to call the dominators, where you know they would never really lose any anything. <laughs> Just win every single game, you know. Before we go, I'm gonna ask you, uh, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit. So more and more these days you find cricketers and you've mentioned a couple already that can sing a song or play a tune mm -hmm. um now from your putting your musical hat on for the moment who do you think has been the most talented cricketing musician that you've come across uh, down the years i i would honestly say mark butcher really because mark mark could you know you take away any of the cricket side of it and what he did as a, and does as a singer and guitarist completely stands up you know some of the people like you know like maybe Brett Lee if they had dedicated themselves more to music they would have been pretty pretty damn good Brett Lee's one of Brett Lee's brothers not Shane but the other brother is a very fine piano player. So I, I, they've all got it in them to shine in that respect. But but Mark sort of stood out really. And also a guy who you may not know who played mainly minor county cricket, um, a chap called Orlando Le Fleming, who is a wonderful jazz double bass player. I mean, literally world-class. He lives in New York now. And he played for, I think, Wiltshire. He may have played for Somerset. And I'm, I'm off the top of my head, you can't quote me on that, but um, he's a fantastic musician. And of course, Don Bradman was a very good pianist, though there are recordings of him playing, you know, pretty competent. And there was a, also Frank Parr, who was um, 
wicketkeeper for Lancashire, who was a very good trombone player in sort of on the Dixieland scene, you know, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say he was world class. And then of course you've got, you know, Kurt Lee and Richie Richardson who are <laughs> sort of but I haven't, I haven't actually heard them, so I can't <laughs> how good they are, you know. Yeah, yeah. But Jimmy Anderson does a bit as well, doesn't he? Jimmy does a bit. Uh, Joe Root plays a bit of guitar, apparently. Alistair Cook plays saxophone. But Jason Gillespie used to play saxophone. Um, I've not really... I, I think most of them should stick to cricket, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, troubled in uh, record companies at all, but um, it's great. I mean, they all love music. That's the great bonding thing, you know. That that the, the the amazing thing playing wherever I played around the world was I could guarantee all the cricketers showing up, and that was here. That was in Scotland, in Ireland, in LA, in Barbados, in Antigua. And uh, they they would all be there, you know. They they'd all come along, even after a day's play, which of course wouldn't happen now. No, no. Um, excellent to see you, John. You're looking very well and um, on good form as always. So um, many thanks for joining us today. And uh, I should tell you that our next guest, following you on the show tonight, is a certain Emma Butcher. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's hence the laughs. I had to say it, didn't I? No. I, 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 I seriously mean it, you know, I mean, the the all-star bands we put together, you know, for the PCA for all those 10 years or whatever, however long it was, I, you had really serious people playing there, you know, you had the Ray Coopers and your um, John Etheridge and uh, Henry Spinetti, you know, I mean, lots of top class, Bill Wyman, you know, the, yeah. the top and Mark was not out of place, you know, and they all, they all said so, you know, it was, <laughs> wow, you know, you sound great. So it wasn't, it wasn't just lip service, you know, because he was the, the <laughs> Brilliant. So, uh, give him my best. <laughs> I will, I will. Uh, all right, excellent. Many, many thanks, John Altman. Um, we could, as always, talk all night, but uh, we'll save a bit for the Lord's Tavern's lunch. And if anyone's interested, they should uh, head now to uh, lordstaverners.org where you can buy tickets and come down and you can you can meet John. You can even buy me a drink if you want. Um, but there'll be plenty of good people down there all raising money for a fantastic cause. Uh, the Tavern's is, is a wonderful charity. Uh, and the Christmas lunch is always an excellent occasion. So um, I would urge everyone to, uh, to, uh, to try and get yourself down there for a great afternoon. And um, look forward to seeing it if you can get there. John Altman, uh, many thanks for coming on 98 Now. Always a pleasure talking, and we'll catch up very soon. My pleasure.